The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Francis is out today. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. Maria Rote will be named the next Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer. Next Gov reports, Rote currently serves as the Small Business Administration's Chief Information Officer. She will succeed Margie Graves, who finished her term as Deputy Federal CIO at the end of 2019. The General Services Administration has out a new request for proposals for its e-commerce platform. Companies that bid on the initial solicitation now have until Wednesday to change their proposals. NextGov reports the revised RFP was issued after a protest. The backlog of retirement claims at the Office of Personnel Management is dwindling. The requests, however, are taking longer to process. Federal News Network reports it's taking an average of 66 days to process claims, the longest it's taken in over a year. The newly enacted National Defense Authorization Act halts a plan that would have limited the education benefits soldiers can transfer to their spouses and children. Since the post-9-11 GI Bill was implemented, over 700,000 veterans and families have used the education benefits. Patrick Murphy is a former U.S. Representative for Pennsylvania and former Undersecretary of the Army. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Marjorie. What was the idea behind the changes that, um, that the that DOD was proposing? Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because my perspective as a congressman who co-authored the post-9-11 GI Bill originally uh, years ago, and then now the recent changes, we want to make sure that it's a huge recruitment tool. When we ask less than 1% of our country to serve during the longest wars in American history in Afghanistan and Iraq, and, you know, to pass on those benefits that they've earned, you know, to their spouses or to their, to their kids, it's incredibly important. So the fact that DOD stepped forward and with the help of Congress made sure that they were still able to, to transfer those benefits under the post and GI Bill and also the Forever GI Bill was incredibly important. Do you think it's still a needed recruitment and retention tool these days? No doubt. No doubt. I mean, listen, the Department of Defense, you know, in the Army, we hired about 120,000 millennials or Gen X or, or now Gen Zs every year. So, you know, the statutory authority of, you know, when you look at Secretary McCarthy, you know, his job is to man, train, and equip our Army. Uh, and it goes across all the services, obviously. But, you know, as the largest branch, you know, hiring 120,000, and again, that's a total force. That's active duty, reserve, and National Guard. Uh, it's a pretty daunting responsibility. Do you view this legislation as sort of settling the issue once and for all, or do you think that there may be efforts in the future to try to pull back these benefits again? Well, unfortunately, there there seems to be uh, on the current some folks in Congress. Of course, they don't usually say it publicly in the press, but they do try to cut back veterans' benefits, uh, and it's it's frustrating. Uh, but this Congress stepped forward uh, in the House, especially, and really came forward. And you know that's why, as a uh, you know, I was the first Iraq vet in Congress. I love the fact that there's these undercurrent of new members of Congress, post 9/11 veterans serving Congress, but I would say, Marjorie, it, it's harder for them now because we have the least amount of veterans serving in Congress in over 50 years. Wow. Uh, you know, compared to how you envisioned this working, what do you think of the post 9-11 GI Bill now? Is it what you expected? Um, have the benefits kind of come to fruition as you planned? It, it has, and, it, and it's been increasing under, you know, 
both parties in Congress to be to be part bipartisan here. And we have real champions. You know, when you look at like the Student Veterans of America, that's a post Ivan VSO veteran service organization that's out there, and they're in 150 campuses across America. They weren't there before. Before veterans came back, and they went to the American Legion and the VFW. And listen, I'm a life member of both those organizations. But to have post Ivan VSO step up like the Student Veterans of America under the leadership of of uh, a good friend of mine, Jared Lyon, who's a Navy veteran, and you know, really get this excitement. And it's not just veterans going back to college campuses. As I mentioned, it's spouses and it's kids using it. And right now there's about 1.1 million uh, students in college across America on that post on Evan GI Bill. Do you think um, that there are, it sounds like you think there are consequences for kind of lowering the number of veterans in Congress. What do you think those consequences are and, and what would you suggest to kind of remedy that? Well, uh, listen, I, I, I support veterans that, that run for office, so I, I'm very active on different political campaigns, but, uh, but when they're veterans, I take a special you know, liking and, and support because you know, for me, I feel a responsibility to, to make sure that my brothers and sisters get a chance to continue their service to our nation, and that's to serve in political public service. And I know people could downplay it, and you know, everyone could, you know, attack Congress and, and the Senate and obviously and whoever's run for president. But the reality of it is, is these folks put their name on the line and their reputations. And our veterans, whether Democrats or Republicans, have shown time and time again, whether it was President Eisenhower, President Kennedy, John McCain, they put our country first over the political parties. And I think the American people understand that that's what's missing right now in Washington. Just to pivot for a second, I know that you're also uh, chairing innovation at West Point. Um, tell us what you're working on there. Sure. Listen, I had an incredible opportunity as a young officer to teach at West Point, and unfortunately, I was there when 9/11 happened, so I deployed to combat a couple times. But um, West Point is a special place. It is the premier leadership institute in the world, and we develop leaders of character for a lifetime of service. So. The chair innovation right there, I get to work with Superintendent General Williams and, and these young, these 4,000 cadets that are just, just awesome. And really to try and develop public-private partnerships with the private sector to make sure that, you know, West Point is a thought leader uh, for our nation and the world, but also to make sure that, you know, they're understanding the challenges that are out there and whether it's the challenges in cyber uh, or, or just in their young soldiers that they're about to lead. Uh, it's an incredibly important job and responsibility. Uh, what do you think is sort of the opportunity for an academic institution like West Point to make a difference in this? We often think that you know this is about companies, whether they're you know the big defense contractors or the startups on the West Coast. Um, how do you think an academic institution fits in? Well, it's interesting. Like, even things like physical fitness. You know, the Army. We just changed our you know physical fitness test, the APFT, or now it's called the Combat Fitness Test. And, you know, it's really about functional fitness. So, you know, when I was in Iraq uh, as an 82nd Airborne Paratrooper, I, I never had to run two miles. But, you know, there was times when, <laughs> you know, my guys and gals, you know, we, they, they had to kick down the door. And, it, again, that functional fitness of carrying somebody and doing the things necessary. Well, at West Point, they're not just taking that CFT, the combat fitness test, that functional fitness test. They're actually being taught on how to administer and how to obviously teach the next generation of warriors on how to be better warriors and how to make sure they're doing everything necessary, technically proficient, you know, the deadlifts and other things that they'll need to do in real life settings when you look at where our, our troops are engaged right now. Thank you so much, Patrick Murphy. Appreciate Thanks, you being Marjorie. here. Thanks.
Up next, a look at what's in a name straight ahead on Government Matters, how the term cybersecurity changes the way we look at cyber threats. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Cybersecurity has long been a buzzword in defense, but what exactly does that term mean to policymakers and the public? And is there a better way to talk about the issue? Suzanne Spalding is Senior Advisor of Homeland Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's former Undersecretary for the National Protection and Programs Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security. Thanks for joining us, Suzanne. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. What's wrong with relying on this term cybersecurity? What's the problem there? Well, I think this just now covers too many different things. And as a result, instead of illuminating the conversation, it just confuses people. So when we talk about cybersecurity, for example, I mean, the American public doesn't know whether we're talking about a data breach that means they're going to get a new credit card in the mail every few months uh, and have to change all their automatic payments, which is a pain in the neck. Or does that mean a breach into that, that might take down a part of the electric grid for some extended period of time, or even a, a, a hack into military systems? So those are very different things. I mean, the theft of, of personal information is not the same as an attack on industrial control system. And yet we cover it all in this vague term, cybersecurity. What, what do you recommend? Do you, should we have more terms? Um, should we have sort of a modifier? What do you think would help make uh, it more clear what we're talking about here? Yeah, well, I think uh, I think number of things. I think we need to disaggregate that term. So, uh, you know, decades ago, I was focused, I was the legal advisor for the folks in CIA who worried about the spread of weapons of mass destruction. And we, could, we couldn't get traction, uh, policy traction on addressing uh, the issues. And we realized that in, in large part that was because we kept talking about WMD as if it was one thing. Uh, and it wasn't until we broke it down into nuclear, chemical, biological, radiological weapons that we began to be able to see that they, each of these, while with, they had commonalities, were susceptible to different kinds of approaches. Um, and I think we need to do the same thing with cybersecurity. We need to uh, recognize that these are different the, again, that an attack on an industrial control system is susceptible to different kinds of approaches, uh, perhaps then the theft of personal identifiable information or the theft of intellectual property or a ransomware attack. And we need to be specific when we talk about these things with the American public whenever we can and be clear about what it is we're talking about. It sounds like you think the way we talk about it, our terminology, um, actually can have a real impact on, on public opinion and, and policy. Um, how do you think that this would affect the way um, the public cares about cybersecurity or the way lawmakers or policymakers um, change cybersecurity regulations or rules? Yeah, I do. I think if we were, did a better job of helping the public understand uh, what is at stake here, what we're talking about, uh, they would be in a better position to bring pressure to bear on Congress, on the executive branch, and on businesses uh, to do a better job. They would be better informed uh, consumers uh, to make wiser choices in the marketplace. Uh, you know, we, we have some successes, I think, in this arena. Uh, I, I look at the area of privacy. Um, that privacy is obviously much broader 
than just uh, the unauthorized hacking into uh, you know, sensitive information or data, but that is certainly part of it. And Americans have a sense of what that is. They have a much better sense of data privacy and, and what is involved there and what they should care about. I, I was just recently at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas last week, and I each year that I go, I'm pleased to see that there is uh, seems to be a growing emphasis on data privacy. I saw a, a nifty you know, wrist uh, device that goes around your wrist that uh, you know helps you when you go to the grocery store because it has used your DNA to build a profile of what is healthy and not healthy for you. Um, they were very quick, the exhibitors, to point out that that DNA is not, never. they never see it, uh, and they don't store it. It is immediately, once your profile is built for your, on your device, it is eliminated. Um, and I saw this time and time again. So that's, I think, a success where instead of just talking about cybersecurity, which can cause Americans to tune out and think it's technical, talking about data privacy is something that resonates with them. There are areas where I think we see the failure uh, just equally clearly. And, and one of those, I, I would say, is cyber insurance. Who could take the lead on this? I mean, um, terminology is a, a challenging thing. How, how would you sort of suggest um, a particular group start changing the way we talk about cybersecurity? Yeah, well, I think all of us who are in the community need to uh, do a better job of uh, every time we want to use the word cybersecurity, kind of stop and think to ourselves, is there a, a, a way I can describe this that is more specific? Um, or can I, you know, with a few more words, uh, more clearly define? And I think the most, there are lots of ways that you could disaggregate or break down uh, the, uh, and better describe cybersecurity risk. You could talk about threat actors, you could talk about vulnerabilities, but I think the most useful way for the American public is to talk about the consequences, right? Are we talking about uh, a risk to data confidentiality? Are we talking about a risk that would disrupt our ability to access information uh, on the internet? Are we talking about uh, something that might um, go to the integrity of data uh, that is either stored or in transit? And, and I think if we, if we began to break it down, just even in those ways, I think it would help the American public understand what's at stake here. Thank you so much for joining us, Suzanne Spalding. Thank you. Up next, a look at how the military services are taking new approaches to acquisition. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what we can learn from the procurement experiments at the Pentagon. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. The acquisition process is getting plenty of attention from Congress and DOD. They've created new authorities and offices to jumpstart innovation and fast-track buying, but also created some challenges. Susanna Bloom is Senior Fellow and Deputy Director of the Defense Program at the Center for a New American Security and former Deputy Chief of Staff for Programs and Plans to the Deputy Secretary of Defense. Thanks for being here. Thank you. 
What are you seeing happen in terms of new authorities, new offices, and, and the way they're being applied in the different services? Yeah, so the 2016 and 2017 NDAAs had two major buckets of reforms. First, they gave the department some expanded and some new authorities, uh, enhanced use of OTA, middle tier acquisition authorities, things to allow the department to go faster, do more prototyping, those kinds of things. At the same time, in the 17 NDAA, Congress devolved a series of acquisition authorities down to the services. And so what we have is each of the services kind of interpreting these new authorities a little bit differently. And essentially it's a laboratory. It's an experiment now that we have running in three in real time with three different groups taking three different approaches. What do you think, or how would you characterize kind of the different approaches of the services? Sure. Uh, I think the Army is taking big bets. Uh, and, and I should say at the outset, all of these approaches are pretty consistent with the kind of institutional character of the services and their historical practice. Uh, the Army is taking big bets, right, pursuing their big six modernization programs, which, you know, while not the same as the big five programs of the 70s, certainly rhymes a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, again, true to their history and their kind of institutional character. Uh, the Air Force approach, I would say, is characterized by experimentation and going fast. Also true to their history, and we see that a little bit with the you know digital century series now hearkening back to the original century series aircraft of iterating very quickly on on new kinds of platforms or trying to recapture some of that magic. The Navy uh, is taking the most conservative approach. Again, that makes sense given that they buy a lot of capital ships that have very long service lives. Um, uh, they're most akin to kind of the control group for the historical major defense ac acquisition program system. And, and viewing it in this sort of lens of an experiment, how do you think um, analysts on the outside or, or DOD kind of level folks can measure this, can assess mm -hmm. what's working best and what can we kind of take away yeah. from that? There's a, a lot to be said for kind of letting a thousand flowers bloom, right? Letting the services each try and pursue their own approaches to uh, figure out how to develop and acquire the next generation of weapon systems. I think that, uh, you know, joint folks in the department, in OSD, as well as the joint staff, um, need to be uh, oversighting and measuring the success and failure of these different approaches in terms of the success and failures of the acquisition programs themselves. Uh, those of us on the outside should be doing the same thing at a slightly higher level of abstraction, right? <laughs> if you do that right, what do you think you walk away with? Do you actually have some best practices you think can apply to everybody? I think it's definitely possible that the experiment will reveal uh, some best practice approaches to how uh, middle tier acquisition authorities, for example, are being used by the services that could apply to all three. I think it's also possible that we'll discover that there are certain um, pieces of the acquisition system that are best left to the discretion of the services, where an individual approach, you know, something that works for the Navy is not going to work for the Army necessarily or the Air Force. Do you also think in this scenario maybe we neck down a bit from the number of offices and authorities and kind of ideas that are that are happening right now into a smaller set of sort of acquisition tools, or, or would that not necessarily come from that? Uh, well, the department is undertaking a rewrite of the kind of fundamental acquisition regulations, the 5,000. Uh, and so hopefully, as part of that process, OSD, ANS is going to be having a hard look at what's happening in each of the services to understand uh, within that regulatory regulation document how to best, um, you know, leverage things that should be common across the department and also allow for the services to have enough flexibility for where pursuing different approaches really does make the most sense. 
And the other thing you kind of hinted at earlier um, is what is the time frame for sort of knowing what's working? As you as you point out, the Navy has, and in particular, has some just really long programs. But but all of the services in general, compared to you know what we might see in a uh, commercial world, have have long cycles. Yeah. Um, it, it varies by service and it varies even down to the program level, right? So to a certain extent, we should know um, very quickly whether some of these OTA or middle tier approaches are, are working in terms of getting prototypes into the hands of operators to see you know, whether they should transition into, into a full up you know, program of record or not. Um, obviously, the longer lead time programs, it's gonna take more time to know whether or not the approaches that the different services are using are working. And, and you mentioned earlier the sort of importance of, of analyzing this at a at a sort of central level, at a, at a DoD or OSD level. Um, do you think that's happening right now, or, or at the at the sort of level of detail that it should be? Um, you know, certainly there are a lot of dedicated acquisition professionals in OSD who are who are working hard um, in their oversight responsibility here. I do think that. Um, the the divorce of ATNL into acquisition statement research and engineering has been a huge draw of time and attention. Um, you know, hopefully the last kind of lingering issues there can be resolved quickly and everybody can kind of be focused more on the substance of their job rather than the rearranging of the deck chairs. And um, with just about a minute to go, um, what do you see as the role of Congress in this? Obviously, they created some of these authorities. They've been focused on this issue. Um, do you think they're going to play a role in figuring out what works and what doesn't? Yeah, I mean, Congress's role is obviously essential in everything that the executive branch does. I think what I would offer is that Congress needs to give the department the time and the space to fully implement the round, these latest rounds of acquisition reform that have come from Congress as opposed to from within the department, um, and then be prepared to assess whether the things that they did in the 16 and 17 NDAAs have been successful or where they need to kind of tweak the authorities that come from the legislative branch. Thank you so much, Susanna Bloom. Thank you, Marjorie. You can stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or simply tell your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of nonpartisan government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. I'm Sharice Hanner. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sumser. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, give our listeners some best practices for achieving a consistent security posture in the public cloud. Absolutely. So in public cloud, we have many different cloud providers. They have different security controls and mechanisms. To be able to control those in a single agency, we want to be able to gain visibility into your assets, your inventory and your cloud environments, those different components, if you will. Using Checkpoint Dome 9, this allows us to assess and gain visibility across all of your cloud environment and their controls. It also allows us to run some quick remediations against the NIST policies to make sure you're compliant and easily report on those so you know exactly where you're at to start with. Hey, Jeremy, 
he touched on this a little bit, but what about regulatory compliance challenges here? What do you see as potential hurdles? Well, it is a tremendous challenge. Uh, it's at the forefront of most of the conversations we have today. Not only do you need to ensure compliance of your internal security policies, but you also have to meet those regulatory compliance standards, like Sean mentioned with NEST or PII. With Checkpoint's Dome 9 solution, we have a full inventory of your environment and how everything is configured already, so it's simple for us to go ahead and provide NIST compliance rule sets, for example, right out of the box. Our experts will keep those rules up to date for you, and you can simply run your assessment on your cloud platforms, and it provides you the full audit-ready report. Okay, so Sean, let's talk remediation. How should these agencies respond if they, say, fail a compliance assessment? Yeah, there's really two ways to approach that. One, take the report in Dome 9 and use the step-by-step -step directions provided, so the just-in-time education, to correct those findings. Or two, leverage the technology to do auto-remediation. So as soon as you make misconfigurations or skip something, it'll take the actions to correct that. And lastly, the tamper protection capabilities really protect your administrators and those privileged accounts so that third-party hackers can't get access to those and masquerade as them in the public cloud. So again, use the reporting, the auto-remediation, and the tamper protection to protect yourselves. Great information. Sean, Jeremy, thanks for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.